You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Happy Pollinator Week, everyone. Welcome back to a new Rooted Discussion episode of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to a, a slightly earlier than Pollinator Week, episode 58. And, slightly. Uh, and we had a, a request in our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group to do like a check-in with some of uh, some of our past guests. We which did. uh this was already in the works before that request. <laughs> we have like an all-star lineup of returning guests um, to talk about pollinators. So yeah. it, it, this is like the dream team of pollinators, not well pollinator guests. Yes, not yeah. real pollinators. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would love to see that list. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to put together. Yeah, a we should do like a yeah team. Mount Rushmore of pollinators. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the end of the episode. <laughs> Uh, so I'm really excited about that. So I'm not even sure why I'm here. I feel like I, like some of these discussions that I'm just getting in the way. Like we have all these great guests, and I'm like, I don't even know why I'm here. Well, you, you have to provide the comedic relief, and, and I don't <laughs> think you keep quiet that long anyway. So, so, but no, it's, you can mute my mic. Sometimes when the, we have these, these larger discussions, it is nice to kind of just – sit back and listen and observe and, yeah. and take it. And then you realize, oh, yeah, this is we're, – we're in charge here. we got to well, interject I, a little bit. I have been told by more than one listener that I need to let our guests talk more mm-hmm. and I should possibly talk less. Yeah. So maybe I can yeah. take that role today and yeah. let our guests Yeah, and talk. why don't we start right now <laughs> with – and we'll get right into our guests. Um, and these – I think all three of your episodes were back-to-back-to-back. Um, oh, I didn't even realize we that. had uh, Marcus Gray from then Audubon International, and now you had a little little change. Uh, we had uh, Sam Drogi from uh, USGS, and you're still in the same spot. So, and that was the National Bee Inventory. And then we had Kelly Gill from the Xerxes Society, who also has still with the Xerxes Society, but had a little change there as well. So, I'll let you guys um, update everyone where you kind of currently are and. Uh, and what you've been doing since we last had you on about a year ago, I guess. Wow. So, Marcus, why don't we start with you? All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Fran. I appreciate you having me back on. It's good to see Kelly and Sam here, too. Um, so I transitioned from Auto International, like Tom said, to being the executive director of Sustainable Monarch. It's a nonprofit that's working to stack ecological and economic values to encourage landowners to maintain pollinator habitat. So we're working with companies that make things out of milkweed, you know, milkweed floss or fiber out of the, the pod, um, seed oil, um, or the stalks to make clothing, lotions, you know, salves, cosmetics, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, and fill for clothing, bedding, batting for quilts, that sort of thing. Just try to get people planting more habitat because they value and they're making money off of the native plants you know, without degrading them. So that's, that's a lot of what we've been doing. And we've got a couple of events coming up with Butterfly County to um, sort of like a hit-a-thon where you, you go get pledges for your kids, mm-hmm. you know, how many baseballs they hit or softballs they hit. You know, how many butterfly species can you see? Can you get pledges from the hardware store or your family or friends um, for the either the number of individual butterflies or the number of species that you see? Mm-hmm. 
Very cool. Very nice. Very cool. Very and that's cool. called the World Series of Butterf- yes. Butterflies, Butterfly right? World Series. Yep, yeah, right. I think Fran and I are going to have to put together a team for that, too. Ooh. When's that start? Right. No, I hope you do. It's it's July 17th and 18th, so it's just one right. weekend. A uh, little later than some of the other counts that go on, but I've had people tell me they want something a little later mm-hmm. in the season as well. So um, I just picked that date arbitrarily, and we're just going to go with it. It just happens to be during Moth Week. So <laughs> yeah, um, perfect. Yeah, perfect. He'll be up all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, Sam. Why don't we move on to to you? Why don't you give a little update of uh, how you've been since we last talked? Your, I think your microphone is yeah, muted. This might be our first first muted. <laughs> <laughs> muted. Right. Oh, there so you go. I, I was having some um, internet instability, not personal instability. <laughs> Um, no, that's the, happening on my end here. Uh, I think I think I cleared it up by just eliminating all the 500 windows that I had open. So hopefully we're going from there. Uh, I don't know uh, what the specific updates are, but we've been working now a lot on bumblebees mm-hmm. and doing bumblebee surveys, crafting some new techniques for um, looking at um, populations in the areas where the endangered bumblebee is. That's Bombus aphanus or the what is the common name rusty belt um uh help me out mm-hmm. on there kelly is it rusty patch bumblebee rusty yeah. Patch. yeah and doing it in a non-lethal way which we're not used to doing mm-hmm. and then we're also working on um and you guys will like this we're looking at how to quantify what bees actually are using when they're out in the wild so oh. we have a lot of records like this bee is sitting on that plant particularly bumblebees and things and that accumulates over time, but we don't have a context. So okay. we're looking at, uh, okay, we're finding uh, bumblebees foraging on these plants, and these are the specific plants and the specific bumblebee species. But uh, now we're putting that into the context. Well, what else is blooming? What's the um, um, other options that they have so mm-hmm. that we can really nail preferences in a much more accurate way? So ultimately, we'll be providing. Uh, nursery people and all kinds of folks um, with lists of like these are the best bumblebee plants based on actual data. Wow. Um, rather than wow, you know, the awesome. kind of observations that we do. Fantastic. Very I'm looking cool. forward to that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Any help that we can get, the better. Yeah. <laughs> the better. Yeah. So, and uh, a lot of rare, rare and uncommon plants that aren't really in the trade. I would say right now. Awesome. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's it's funny how far along we've come. Like we went from having none of that mm-hmm. to now actually like it's it's within our reach, within yeah. our sight. So I'm oh, yeah. I'm excited about that. And uh, Kelly, why don't you give a little update of uh, of your promotion in the Xerxes Society? <laughs> well, hi everybody. I'm uh, not going anywhere, so nobody panic. Um, and I will interject. Dis- we got really or feel scared. Disappointed. No, either way. Yeah, yeah we we did panic. Yeah, we, we did got, panic. We got really scared because we saw a job posting for the like the New Jersey Regional Xerxes Society rep. I'm like, oh no, what's happening to Kelly? Yeah, I saw it on. <laughs> Where's she going? Oh, I was going. Uh, she must get needs to supervise somebody. Yeah, yeah I, I saw it on Facebook. I'm like, it's funny, but the job posting that's or the job listing that's posted sounds like Kelly's job. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't so. worry, they haven't canned me yet. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so most of my work has been working, you know, on the ground locally here in the mid-Atlantic states and uh, northeast, lower New England, helping um, working lands, so farms, ranch, forest landowners implement farm bill practices for habitat 
um, installations for pollinators um, okay. and other wildlife as well. I'll still be doing some of that. My position is gonna shift a little bit, um, mostly in the range I cover. So instead of partnering with the Mid-Atlantic States at the field office level, I will be working um, come July with the uh, East National uh, Technology Center. Okay. And so that's where our regional kind of tech, uh, science and technology team sits. Um, mm -hmm. My position will be filled. You won't be left without somebody locally. I'll still be staying here in New Jersey too. Okay. Um, and working remotely, but my my tasks will change a little bit. Um, but I don't think anything that will be too noticeable for for you guys anyway. Um, I'm really excited to accept some new challenges. Um, the work plan is unfolding as we speak, so there's a little anxiety and excitement as well. Um, but it will be very much the same um, advice, giving technical advice and creating tools and documents and, and helping people plan um, their conservation plantings for pollinators. Uh, we also do community projects unrelated to NRCS or the Farm Bill. Most recently, which Pinelands was our partner on, was our, our habitat kits. Um, so we're looking for ways to really engage, you know, different people beyond just the farms, get the community involved um, and really expand our partnerships. Because as you all know, you know, this isn't something we can do in a vacuum. Yeah, that's that's all wonderful news. It's so great to hear so many great things from from all of you and, and getting to catch up. And it's great that we have all three of you together. Um, and we appreciate you joining us for Pollinator Week because this is a big deal for us and I know it's a big deal for you. And it, kind of following up on something that you said, Kelly, um, about encouraging more people, I, I think we wanted to start off just by asking each of you how you how you celebrate Pollinator Week, maybe both personally and professionally, and how can we encourage more people to get involved? We're constantly talking about not just preaching to the choir and making the circle bigger. That's the only way this works to make a difference is to get more and more people at involved so we just curious how that you're all going to celebrate it and and some tips of how we can help other people celebrate it that maybe don't even know it's pollinator mm -hmm. week uh and how we can get other people involved and we could start off with whoever wants to start off first don't make me pick it's, someone it's not <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right marcus can you start off first well i'm sorry yeah i mean i'm, I'm the straw man I guess. no so yeah <laughs> but um the I spend a lot of time on Pioneer Week just promoting it on social media, you know, and and then in person, there's generally butterfly walks or plant walks, things like that, to try to get people out and about. And so, like, I'll either go out on my own. I've gotten into butterflies relatively recently, you know, like since 2016. But um, I'll go and conduct a pollard walker, a modified pollard walker, just a, a survey or a, a informal walk with people just to see what's what's available and mm -hmm. what butterflies are flying and what plants are using things like sort of like what Sam, Sam's talking about with the with uh, bumblebees but it's just getting people out and getting them to notice you know I have people tell me all the time they're like oh you know I planted x in my yard because of your post or whatever and so it's like you know a lot of time you feel like you're out there just speaking to the vacuum right the voice in the wilderness mm -hmm. um you know but but people do notice you know they notice your neuroses and um you know they see that you're passionate and and that um there's things that they can do and so like i i spent a lot of time talking about our garden here at the house you know we moved mm -hmm. in 2018 uh we, we skipped the border on jersey and we're in new york but um you know we've planted 
a hundred species of plants, mostly native, um, since that time. And in 2019, just because we're surrounded by more or less, you know, idle land, you know, that's not doesn't have a lot of invasive species issues. We have a little bit of a mugwort problem, but we've got the forest host plants like the oaks and and maples and and hackberry and things in the in the timber. So we had 50 species of butterfly in 2019 in this in this yard. Wow. Usually you, you'd be doing good if you get 25 for the whole season. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, depending on where you're where you're located, urban areas is a little tougher, but it's getting better as people plant and green spaces get um, transitioned into more pollinator habitat. But you know, that was amazing. I was like, wow, this is great. And then a wrench got thrown in it. We had a late frost in 20, and I had 27 species, and so it, it was really like a, a gut punch. But then you have to realize that these populations are just prone to eruptions and just crashes. Mm-hmm. So getting people to realize that you know yes they can plant it build it they will come sort of a thing but you have to realize that we need a, a minimum base of habitat out there on the ground that's high quality to maintain these populations and have connectivity between the patches or else you'll just have species blink out of an area um you know harry zerlin was talking about um in westchester county on the surveys they've been conducting there for you know, decades that there are 30 species now that have they've lost from those counties well. Um, just as development has happened and, and things have changed, things are shifting around, whatever stochasticity there is. Um, so if we don't know what's going on out there, we won't notice the difference until it's too late. Um, and that's a big problem with in monitoring in general, like we've talked about in the past. Like if, if we don't keep tabs on the pulse of what's going on, we're going to be caught yeah. uh, unprepared. <laughs> and we're going to have these continuing listing uh, actions where we don't really know what's going on. Nobody yeah. does. They're just going to say, well, we're going to propose this species. So we need to have some sort of comprehensive monitoring across taxa, not just butterflies, not just bees, but across taxa. But it's tough. You know, we can't even get monitoring on the things that people, quote unquote, enjoy. Yeah. Let alone some obscure things like, you know, that yeah. spend half their life underground like cicadas do. It's interesting you brought up making an impact, and that's something Tom and I talk about all the time. Sometimes you feel like you're talking and, and you don't know if you're making an impact because you're – you're spreading the message and you don't get the feedback and it's Mm -hmm. funny because all three of you influence me on a daily basis but it's not like i'm interacting with you to tell you so you Mm -hmm. don't necessarily know so it's really hard to to know just that feedback i'm hoping with this episode maybe we'll try to find a way to get some feedback just to know what people are doing to get people involved like how are you spending your pollinator week tell us you know have have any of our guests uh, shared something that made a difference with you yeah. or something like that, try to get some. Yeah, and it, another thing that was interesting you brought up is when you put up a post and then people go and plant that plant. And I always love when, when we put up a picture or profile of a plant on uh, on our Facebook page. And then it seems like the, like the most random people that aren't into native plants are like, oh, I want one of those. Where can I get it? And then a lot of times I'm like, well, th- you don't really want this plant. for You don't want a blackjack oak as you're a shade tree in your yard. Yeah. You, you want something else. <laughs> But um, no, it's it's funny sometimes how effective that is, just putting up a plant and saying how great well, it is. Yeah. I was talking to my neighbor, and he sees what I'm doing, digging up the lawn like a weirdo, you know, and playing the flowers. Now they don't think I'm quite as crazy, but he's like, I really want some more burning bushes. I'm like, the hell you do? I know you don't. <laughs> um, you know, so you that out, but I'm like, I'm just sitting here thinking about killing the ones you've got. Um, and how can I do it without you knowing that I'm doing it? Um, there are some things that are just, just so noxious, <laughs> you know, that you just shouldn't shouldn't plant. Mm-hmm. But you know, we have a four hundred year legacy of introduced plants and you have to pick your battles. Like, you know, am I gonna take out the Rose of Sharon in the front yard that yeah, it puts up some suckers, but 
I've got Tartarian Honeysuckle back there that I inherited. That That's my priority. I'm going to try, and the mugwort. You know, I'm going to get rid of that stuff first the mm-hmm. best as I can, and then I'm going to get, you know, I'll go down the line yeah. <laughs> and eliminate things. Awesome. Replace them. Kelly, how about you? Well, I just want to say, Mark, we got to stop calling ourselves weirdos for digging up our lawns and our places. <laughs> the other people are the weirdos. Oh, um, yeah. You should, the conversation is just funny. that perception that it's not weird. It's it's the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, when, when Pollinator Week first started, the, the Xerces Society, you know, we would have these big you know, PR campaigns and uh, Facebook blasts and blogs, and we're still doing that. We've, we've cut back on it um, a little bit because obviously, you know, we're doing this work year round. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's a busy, busy time of year for us. You know, this is the busiest time for most of our staff. Um, and so there's, you know, capacity issues sometimes and, and getting habitat on the ground, you know, that, that takes priority. So we're, you know, we continue to focus on that. On June 23rd at, in the evening, we are doing a um, Pollinator Week Q&A for our members. So oh, okay. if you wanted to log on to that, um, it's going to be a little late here because most of the staff involved are on the West Coast. So I got to mm-hmm. stay up late. I <laughs> <laughs> have to fall asleep. But it's a, a kind of a ask us anything. And we'll have representatives from different regions to, you know, get to dig down deep into those more, you know, region specific questions about plants and, and habitats and uh, the status of certain species. Uh, we'll, we'll be putting out blogs, highlighting certain work, highlighting our partners work. Um, but really for us, this is a way for, you know, one example is, you know, our habitat kit project partners to have a celebration after they've planted. Um, and it's a great way for people to reach out to the community and say, hey, this is what we're doing. You know, whether it's this week or next week, you know, the actual dates of Pollinator Week are, are ambiguous, <laughs> but um, these are ways to get involved. And so it, it creates that nice kind of excuse yeah. to get people together and talk about pollinators and what you can do in your community, um, whether it's your backyard or participating in you know, community science program or a bio blitz, or like Marcus said, you know, going out on walks and just observing nature mm-hmm. and, and learning how to appreciate that. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Sam, how about you? Yeah, I'm going to be combining some vacation time with a uh, lecture and trips to the mountains to look for bees with Fish and Wildlife Service and other um, <clears throat> a mix of always bee activities uh, down in Asheville, North Carolina. Awesome. Very, very cool. cool. Tom, are you doing anything? Uh, No, not in particular. I think similar to what Kelly said for, for, well, for us every week's plant week, but it's also almost every week is pollinator week just because especially now you're, if you go and see our seed fields or even some of our, um, our nursery crops here, you see insects all over them. So yeah, Agatha and I are actually celebrating it in a different way. We're actually going to remove an invasive tree from our property to make room for more pollinators so we're we're going to remove a a norway maple that had been there and we're going to take that out and we're discussing what we're doing to replace that so um i'm excited about that and when she suggested it, i was like wow i didn't even suggest it that was (laughs) that was your suggestion that's wonderful so that's kind of how we're we're going to spend the week so So fran i'm going to skip the question you have first on this list yeah. And because I want to save it for later. Uh, I That's going to be a, a, 
actually, yeah, but, it, it's. I actually thought of something too that's not on here. Yeah, I don't know where. What you're... I was, what I was going to ask is, we hear the term pollinator a lot, and pollinator really covers a whole bunch of things. Um, is there a best type of pollinator? So I can uh, answer that in a in the large way, which is to say that, uh, you know, there are no better and worse, but the. If you look at the environment as a whole, bees are doing most of the heavy lifting, particularly in the east. When you get to the southwest, you start picking up bats that are doing pollination. Um, out west, you have more hummingbird species, and they're doing pollination of plants that lean towards having hummingbirds do that work. And then everywhere you can find some systems that are uh, working off beetles, flies, um, and odds and ends, mixed plants um, or mixed kind of opportunities. Look at, for example, your pignanthemums. Mm -hmm. um, there's wasps all over the place. They're basically saying, everyone who wants a little nectar will be our pollinator. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I lo love mountain, man. <laughs> it's yeah. busy. You know, get, get a good patch of it. It's, it's busy. And, yeah. you know, magnolias, like right here from Virginia, this beetle pollinated. You know, everybody loves magnolia tree. So I thought maybe it would, you know, because we asked all of you to kind of like update us with how you're doing professionally maybe we should do it just a quick update on yeah, our pollinators like since we've talked which with most of you it's been a year ago um you know i know we're always working to help our pollinators but is there any one um species that it's in trouble or are we seeing one bounce back is or are things still the you know where they were a year ago and we're still just working on that is, is there any new new news just on something good or something bad that's happening with the state of our pollinators that we need to know about. So I'll, I'll comment that, uh, you know, as Marcus mentioned last year, we had this really nasty spring weather right in the middle of when uh, both the early bloom was out and you had queen bumblebees and a bunch of other species. It just froze out a lot of plants throughout the uh, Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast and in the mountains and then and then New England went afterwards went droughty so it was a really poor year because of that and what my impression is right now is that things have bounced back okay. um, nothing specific um, in terms of individuals but I'm seeing a lot of I saw a lot of queen bumblebees this year in the lab and around my yard so I think you know it shows the resilience that uh, these systems have yeah well, yeah, and that's, and that's the thing, too. It's it's just sort of like with white-nose syndrome and bats, you know, they the insect-eating bats here in the east. You know, when the cave bats got knocked back, the tree bats sort of started to compensate for that population loss. And so, like, pollinators are that way, too. You, if you just look for or you look for one thing, you look for one taxa, and it might be down a year, but, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the, the honeybees are down, but then Sam's uh, the bumblebees that Sam were talking about might, or the mining bees might pick up. So it's if we don't keep a tab on everything, we don't really get a whole picture of what's going on because things shift around, the composition changes. You know what's what's better, you know, richness or diversity. You know, mm -hmm. when you talk about uh, what's going on in the landscape, and that's the thing that we get arguing about all the time. You know, would you rather have like like in your questions that you sent us? You want ten generalists, or you know, do you want ten specialists mm -hmm. out there? I don't know, but like eastern tail blue butterflies are doing really well. They eat clover in your yard. You know. They're having they're having a really good year, but everything else, you know, it, it, the diversity is there, but overall numbers are there. Yeah. So, you know, it's I, I've got 18 species in the yard of butterflies that I've seen right now. 
You know, I'm hoping that I get past the 27 we had last year. It seems like we will, but it's like one of, you know, I'll see one or two of them, you know, instead of a dozen or more mm-hmm. for their flight duty. You know. I think it's, it's really hard to tell just from one year to the other, because there is, you know, like Sam said, and Mark is saying this variation year to year and fluctuations in different populations. Um, you know, the, the species that we have a lot of data on, which is few, um, you know, monarchs, bumblebees, you know, things that have been more well studied over the years, um, you know, we're still seeing those downward trends. Um, even though it, in comparison, they might look a little up from last year or the prior year, but, you know, we're not seeing, you know, these gigantic recoveries, um, so to speak, in, in some of these species that have been recognized as at risk or in decline. Um, and that's, you know, part of the problem is that there's species out there, lots of them, that we don't know historically what their populations were like, um, you know, what their range was like, and, and sometimes, you know, a lot of other things about their biology. So the work that Sam does to do surveys and these citizen science, community science programs are adding to that. But, you know, um, we can't go back. We don't have a time machine, so we can't go back in time, unfortunately. And, and so a lot of times the answer is we don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a great point. We have, you know, we, like Sam and I would say, oh, it's a good year, but it's 40% of what it was 30 years ago. You know, it's it's yeah, it's good year for now, but yeah, in the nineties it was much higher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Mark Marcus, since you Sorry, focus specifically on on monarchs, I've been seeing a whole bunch of stuff, I guess, on monarchs on the west coast having like a serious decline, like a, a yeah, near extinction. Is that the same across the country, or is it just that population in particular? How are how are monarchs faring, I guess, specifically to each region and then overall? Well, yeah, it's just like what Kelly's talking about, you know, it, it's what we were talking about just a minute ago with how far can you walk into the woods till you're walking out, you know, halfway. Mm-hmm. It's where you take a, a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of what's left. You know, it's like, so monarchs, they say, oh, they declined 26%. Well, they already declined 90%. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you, you, you lost 26% of, for the Eastern population of the remainder, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, we're not, we're not, you know, a half of a half of a half is what we're doing right now. And we're bumping around down toward zero which nobody wants to be at uh, but the western population yeah i think they're just experiencing what eastern population will experience later um because they have the same threats and there's some genetic exchange but yeah the the western population that overwinters in california um they they are um less than 2,000 individuals um and so there's a lot of groups working frantically to, to create more habitat protective overwintering sites you know a lot of people in, in kelly's organization is xerxes um conducting surveys um, but it's just like sites that had butterflies and monarchs don't have them now. Mm. Um, you know, and the, the overwintering sites just, they just didn't have them. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of concern about that. And in the East, you know, we're planting a lot of habitat, but now we've, I think we've reached a point where there's a huge lag time between, um, when you plant something and when butterflies get there. Um, and monarchs are a lot more you know, much stronger flyers than a lot of other, than most other species, you know, except for like red admirals and painted ladies. Like most, most species, just like these native bees, the 400 native bees that are around here, um, they're resident. They don't have the luxury of flying across the state line to go somewhere else to get habitat. So I think that they're much more subjected to um, our annual activities and maybe something that's migratory. So we have to keep that in mind too. You know, a lot of these species have very small disjointed ranges as it is. Or very specific plant interactions mm-hmm. 
um, that just may not be there. And so that's why I say like frosted elfin and some of these other butterflies are going to be coming for proposed listings. Um, and if we don't have the data to say yay or nay, you know, we may get legislated to have them listed and then yeah, we may not have voluntary conservation measures like we should have. So. For for pollinators, like we know the the distance that monarchs will travel uh, through their lifespan, but for most of the the pollinators that aren't migratory, like what kind of ground do they cover? Like what? And I know that's tough to answer. That's a very broad statement. But are most of them local and not moving around? So if you lose that local habitat, it's detrimental. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's classic. Um, metapopulation dynamics so you have a source population that goes and feeds these other little patches and they kind of pop up and blink out over time ac across the landscape so if you don't have a base of that you know here in the east early successional habitat young forest grassland um you know power line rights away road rights away timber harvest that sort of stuff um they just don't recolonize an area so you create the habitat and they don't get there they can't make the steps across the landscape but yeah the flight distances are pretty well documented for a lot of the skippers um, especially in the upper Midwest, like Powershik Skipperling and, and Dakota Skipper. That, you know, you're talking like 100 yards. You know, wow. if they can't get, you know, between 100 and 300 yards, if they can't get from one patch to another without getting, you know, hit by a car or just missing, you know, they have to know that the habitat's there and they have to hit it when they just go on their trajectory. That's why they fly kind of erratically anyway. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, I think that um, most of these things are not just resident. I mean, they're very dependent on microclimates. Okay. Same, same thing. with the adaptability is climate changes too. Which is a whole other factor that that I even think <laughs> yeah. about that we can get into. Sam, you you wanted to add to that? Yeah. So um, there's kind of two things uh, to think about there when answering that question. One is um, what's the distance to that they're flying when they've established, and the other is what's the distance they're willing to go when they're dispersing. So I think more in the bee world, and so a bee wakes up. Uh, from its long winter slumber or whatever it's doing down there comes out of the nest doesn't have an app of where to go and it will literally do some circles if there's nothing nearby that meets its criteria for food it just starts flying and mm -hmm. so there it turns out that bees are great dispersers hmm. so because they have to right if they're like oh i give up i'm gonna just um, you know not bother and wait for a plant to grow that doesn't work <laughs> yeah um so I'll give you an example. In the Chesapeake Bay, there's an artificial island called Poplar Island yeah. that was created as a dread spoil site. It's two miles from the nearest land point. Um, it was created a few years back. We did a survey the entire year, um, not too many points out on that, 200 acres or so, and we found 100 species of bees out there, wow. including three or four species that had never been recorded in the state of Maryland before and were globally rare. Wow. So all this points out two things one is you build it they will come so yay for all the planting activities everyone's involved in and also that um we don't know very much about anything really so we can't find these species yet they still persist right it's the fact that we have and find really really rare species well the previous year there those rare species had to exist so that they could procreate and create the um generation that we found right. so it's like having i always my analogy is like what would we know about birds if we had one bird watcher in every state right not yeah. that much <laughs> so <laughs> this is where we are with bees and we don't even have names for some of them well what what i found interesting when you mentioned poplar island we we have supplied most of the plant material to poplar Island. we've supplied over over the last 10 years mm -hmm. over 
million, Mil- yeah, millions of plants. Of plants. So now I'm wondering, uh, is it possible that some of those bees ended up there because they came from here? It depends on what you gave them. Like if you gave them <laughs> what they mostly are looking for, which is probably marsh grasses. Yeah, yeah. Because these bees, most bees are not in salt marshes. There's one, uh, Lazy Glossum halophytum, hmm. uh, aptly named. But um, the remainder are shy of salt marshes, let's mm-hmm. say, but they are fine with the sandy edges. And in this case, most of the action is on either filled comp, uh, impoundments, you know, we're done, okay. it's mm-hmm. now regrowing back into something, or these impoundment edges. So it's not, even though there might be 200 acres, it's not 200 acres of great stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so it's pretty amazing. And, but it would be, like they have to feed on something, right? Yeah. So depending on what you sent them and what ended up there anyway, um, and what was planted, which is a little murky to me, what was planted on those yeah. berms, um, it all plays together mm-hmm. um, in terms of like why you have those bees there. Because yeah. if they had no food, they'd be dead. No, yeah. that's, that's true. And we did supply mainly salt marsh plant material and some upland plant material too. But if you think about it, we're not growing it in a salt marsh. It's we're replicating the salt water system but it's in the middle of a nursery surrounded by mm-hmm. all other material too so it's yeah, it's interesting to think about i never thought of the impact of that that yeah that and i've thing. i've been to popper island two or three times and never mm-hmm. once thought about the the insect activity yeah me I, I know they talk a lot about the terrapins when you're there i know they say that oh yeah there's deer have swum out and, and gotten on the island and you have all the birds and and ducks and all that kind of stuff but i never once thought about insect activity because it is primarily salt marsh and right you go to a salt marsh you don't expect to see a lot yeah. a lot of, a lot of even bees even though that was a really interesting to us study and shocking way more than the fact like oh my gosh a deer swam out there <laughs> um, or we have raccoons um, it's you know i know a lot of people get tours of papa and they don't mention anything about the bees no, which is, no. i think the most interesting of the stories mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's and it really shows, I guess, Fran's question: how far some of these things can can travel. I, I guess when you say bees are really good at dispersal, how far can they go? I know I, I've heard, like, I guess with honeybees that they'll travel from their hive like two to four miles or something like that. But with some of the native bees, how far can they actually go? So, um, so first of all, I can't remember if I mentioned it, but uh, Papua Island is two miles from the nearest mm-hmm. landfall, so it has to be at least that. Yeah. Um, in terms of a dispersal now so when you establish a nest then you ask a different question which is like how far are they going to gather pollen mm-hmm. so for um most solitary nesting bees it's it's just a few meters right mm-hmm. because they put their nest there because there's food around mm-hmm. so they don't have to go far um but for um colonial and semi-colonial things like bumblebees are a good example um, they can fly a couple miles um, mostly it's going to be way less like mm-hmm. why would you fly a couple miles unless you're desperate so yeah. most of the time they're um, kicking around in the neighborhood but the dispersing agent is looking for like oh this is a good neighborhood i'm going to settle here and they may have come in from several miles away mm-hmm. yeah and that's you know because what made me start thinking about it was as our forest change i would imagine that the pollinator population has to change mm-hmm. like if we we're primarily uh chestnut forests and now there are no chestnuts and i don't even know if there's historical data of what pollinators maybe use chestnuts i don't know and that's so Mm -hmm. how has that changed and we don't even have that information to go back historically to look at chestnut is a really interesting story so most people 
um, the literature is half and half in a way. The older literature is like, this is a wind pollinated plant. Um, then you see other people mentioning that there's an insect component. I don't know how established any of that is, but recently to truncate a longer story, we found out that there is a specialist bee that only goes to chestnut. So that would be American chestnut and chinkapin, which is just a small chestnut really. Yeah. And um, it had, did not wink out. So you can basically go wow. to um, any um, chestnut orchard and um, that we've done so far, we've done a, a bunch or had other people do them and find this chestnut bee, which is Andrina Rennie, if anyone cares about the name. And um, so, uh, which is an amazingly persistent story. So until people actually bothered to look on chinkapin and chestnut recently, there were no records for a good 50 to 80 years because chestnut had disappeared as a major component to the forest system. It also blooms real late. So it's blooming now. It's just basically starting to bloom now, even in the mid-Atlantic. And if you imagine its um, heyday, it was a huge source of pollen and nectar when everything else had stopped in forested mm -hmm. environments. So um, yeah, we we don't know so much about some of these plants. So we're, we're very pro chestnut. Too bad there's still a lot of issues with yeah. um, getting them to last for very long. Well, I know there's been some great research being yeah. done, so hopefully we're we're close. I hope. Yeah. So, Sam, you actually sparked a, another question for me, and you might know, or Kelly might not even know the answer. Um, when I brought up honeybees, and then you said, well, most of the native bees are bringing up or making their nests close to their food, but but we do see honeybees do travel quite a distance. I know, like even my house to the closest beehive isn't it's not very close the beehives are further away i know some beekeepers in the area and uh it's maybe not a mile but but close mm -hmm. to that um do you want to do you want to pick that up kelly that. yeah and i i guess the the end of my question would be uh are they traveling that far because they can't find food or there's just so many bees that they need to go and and get it from such a, a vast radius or am I just making this all up in my head that they actually go that far? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that weigh into that. And, and we see, you know, in, in particular, like working with our cranberry and blueberry farmers here in the state, you know, they, they're basically renting honeybees as an insurance policy for pollination. Um, but they come in and ask for help with habitat because they know, you know, for some of those plants, those crops, you know, our native bees are better pollinators. So they tell me, oh, Kelly, you know, I brought out all of these honey beehives and the honeybees just flew into the forest. You know, like <laughs> they didn't go to the crop. We don't see them on the blueberries or, you know, they're, they're kind of temperamental. So they, you know, they hunker down until it's nice and sunny. Well, some of our, our species, you know, like bumblebees are more cold tolerant. So if we have a spring blooming crop, the bumbles will be out working. And, and one of the things to keep in mind with a lot of our solitary bees is that, you know, the females are out collecting pollen to provision their nest. Um, and they don't have workers to help them, you know, those solitary um, wild bees are native species. And so they're spending a lot more time on the flower and they're collecting pollen. Um, 
Whereas honeybees kind of divide and conquer those tasks. So they may send out a lot of nectar foragers. And sometimes those bees that are foraging for nectar only totally miss the parts of the plant that have pollen. So they're not contacting the anthers. A lot of times they're robbing the plants and they're not spending as much time on the plants because they're going nectar, nectar, and, and kind of moving along that way. And so we have these different behaviors um, for these bees that also weigh in on, you know, how they're foraging, how they're visiting flowers, what flowers they're visiting. Um, you know, different species have different uh, lengths of mouth parts. So some really prefer a shallow flower. Some can handle a deeper flower and access those rewards or resources. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into, you know, these patterns of behavior and foraging. Um, you know, at, at one point we thought bigger bees fly further, and that's probably a little bit true, but with Sam's work, um, you know, finding bees that are dispersing onto islands, we, we are probably, you know, maybe putting a little too much faith in that statement, and, and we are, you know, re-looking at these behaviors and and how far they're going to, to gather resources and food. Wow. I, it amazes so, me how much I learn that I don't expect to learn yeah. when we do these episodes. <laughs> I'm enthralled right now. It's so, complicated. Yeah. What's the Sam wants to add? Can I, can I follow up on the honeybee thing? Yeah. I think people don't realize what heavyweights uh, honeybees are. They're, first of all, they're not native, but they've got a system that doesn't exist in um, any of our native bees, and they can tied over for hard times. That's what they have honey for, right? So they're supporting a good hive will produce about a quarter of a million honeybees throughout the season. So that's why we tell people to be careful. Like if you um, are a honeybee keeper and a aficionado and you love honeybees, all right, you should have honeybees. But if you have a motivation that you're going to uh, put honeybees in parks and your backyard and other places um, just because you think it's a good thing to do, it actually is not. So you have 250,000 bees that are competing now with all the native bees. Honeybees are not providing pollination services to wild habitats and to even your gardens because the native bees can do all that. So, um, but you've just thrown a bomb into the system, which is all these crazily efficient um, honeybees um, in there. So I tell people, like, I get it. You know, you love honeybees, you should do that. And they're, that's what beekeeping clubs are. But if you're helping the environment, then you're actually not putting in honeybee hives. Yeah, yeah, beekeeping isn't necessarily conservation. So well, no, and, and they, yeah, they, yeah, people get the idea of like, oh, don't put too many, don't stock too many cows in a pasture. Don't stock too many bees. In <laughs> yeah, what's already there? Yeah. So one one thing I'll add is uh is a uh, talking to a blueberry farmer Kelly. You mentioned the blueberries in New Jersey, which we have some of the best blueberries in the country. Um, but uh, he used to bring in honeybees, and then uh, then just noticed the one day. It's kind of similar to what you said. They were flying in the woods, or even worse, they were chasing away a lot of the native bees from <laughs> the blueberry plants. And he's like, they aren't even going in the blueberry flower. They're chasing away the bees that were going in the blueberry flowers. And uh, so he actually pulled the plug and said, I'm not going to bring in honeybees. And he found his, and I think I've even brought this up on the podcast before. His, his, yield, his, increase. his yield increase, his <clears throat> blueberries were ready sooner. Um, and like, yeah. there was just more pollination overall by not having the bees there. 
versus having bees there. And blueberries, while there's a lot of cultivated varieties, are derived from yeah. uh, native highbush blueberry in our area. So, yeah, honeybees have you know they have those kind of bell shaped flowers yeah. and. Our native bees could hang upside down and get in there. Honeybees have a, have a hard time doing that. I mean, they do visit blueberries, but we've heard this story over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, and I still talk to some people who are unwilling to give up hive rental, even though they know just in case, you know, it's mm -hmm. that, it's that, you know, what if I do it and have a bad year? And so it's, you know, sometimes pay, and some of these farms are large, you know, mm -hmm. they're paying like a salary oh, yeah. $50,000 yeah. a year for, for honeybee mm -hmm. rental when, you know, really, um, you know, they can, they can get those bees there other ways and yeah. protect them other ways through, you know, managing their insecticide use through building habitat, just more resilient systems. Um, so, they have those resident bees on their farm. And there's a lot of weedy bee species that just show up on farms. You know, mm -hmm. or we have extreme generalists that that you'll you'll keep finding no matter what. Sam, did you want to add to that? I, I saw at one point you had your hand up. Oh, uh, the uh, Kelly spoke to most of it. The only additional thing is that um, honeybees don't know how to sonicate, which is basically they're shaking um, the flower and certain flowers and and almost all the ericaceous, perhaps all the ericaceous shrubs, which would include cranberry and blueberry, have um, tubular um, uh, pistils, no, stamens. I forget, it's got a particular name. And they have pores, and you have to shake the flower and the stamens to get the pollen to come out. So some dribbles out, and that's what honeybees pick up, but most of them are going after the nectar. So on average, in terms of pollination per visit, um, the natives are far superior because they're doing this buzz sonication to get the pollen out, which of course increases the, the set. And that's what the plant has designed. And um, I do have to say that for uh, working with a bunch of different people doing studies in cranberry that honeybees hate cranberries. Yeah. <laughs> they will do anything they can to not be in there. But yet the um, cranberry farmers are some of the most conservative it's like they are not going to give up their hives because you know it just seems too risky mm -hmm. because everything wow. is about that crop yeah wow. and some beekeepers don't even want to drop their bees off on cranberry because they, you know there's other more profitable crops as, as far as the bees go yeah they um, it's a at the end the hive is in poor shape because yes. they um, cranberry provides little for them and they're just exactly. desperate well, if I remember correctly, and those structures are, are porocytal anthers. Mm -hmm. for the, oh, very good. The okay. So if yeah. if, <laughs> if I remember correctly, they flood the 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 whole flooding process of the cranberry bogs was to keep things away from destroying the plants at a certain time of the year. If I remember correctly, I well, I, I can't remember. Easy harvest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that affects pollination too and why they're trying to maybe it chases away native bees when it needs to be there. I don't I don't know I'm just wondering yeah. if they were doing that to a to yeah. help uh, ensure the safety of their plants yeah. where they we need our, our, a listener who's a cranberry farmer to yes. call up <laughs> yeah. I always thought they flooded it so the berries came up and then they could harvest them easier yeah but there was it could some be historical of, reference yeah. I read where they were flooding I, it to keep things away yeah, from damaging yeah. mm -hmm. but um so 
for the next question, it, it's funny because I want to ask this question, but I realize it's a horrible question. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to ask you to do something that I really don't want you to do. So because I, I think a lot of times we always look for one solution for everything. And we're like, what's, you know, what thing's going to help everything? But the more I hear all of you talk, I realize there's so many factors at play that, yeah, you may want to put some plants in to help monarch um, along their travels. But then there's so many local specialized bees that you need to support in your area and and you need it's really important to have local plants to support those local communities like plants that are native but then you have climate change that's changing the palette of that and i don't know if there's any one answer let alone a magic answer um but we we started talking about our yards and what's what's a great place for our listeners to start if they're looking in their yards and they're worried about pollinators and they want to make a difference uh, where you know, we always say start small, but what's the best thing our listeners can do to help? And I know it may not be one thing. It may be a series of small things, but it can be overwhelming when you think of all these factors. Is there a good place or, or a, that that's important things to, to start and do? Yeah, so I can answer in a very, again, a very general way is I love the details and these guys love the details too, yeah. but don't worry about them. If you're choosing blooming native plants, you're going to be doing 80% of a good job. And if you look for blooming native plants that are blooming throughout the year, you're you're right in that pocket. And right. anything you do to reduce your lawn footprint, remember nature, nature doesn't produce lawns, right? So um, you're uh, restoring, uh, rehabilitating, and um, giving back to nature what the original landowner, which hopefully wasn't you, um, took away, which is every place that we're uh, sitting in right now was at one point great habitat and is now not, because a house is not habitat, driveways are not habitat. And you have options though, um, not with your house so much as um, with your lawn. So I'm just saying you should feel a little guilty if you have (laughs) a lot of lawn uh, that you are mowing, mowing nature down. So you can yeah. plant plant those plants very easily without um, getting into a lot of specific details, or you can really dial in and look at specialist plants and whatnot. Awesome. Yeah, that was that was going to be a lot of my answer, and probably Marcus's too. Um, you know, and one thing we're constantly thinking about is how do we reach all of our audience across all these different landscapes, um, and you know. I recently moved from an apartment where I didn't have control of the lawn, right? (laughs) They didn't want me to go out. I would have made some big changes. Um, Now I do, and I've been working on my backyard and and, um, reducing the lawn. But some people don't have the ability to do that. And so getting involved in some of our activities, you know, our community science programs, getting out and doing things like Um, Bumblebee Watch, helping us collect data, helping us, you know, document um, what species they're seeing, like Sam said, what plants are they on, you know, expanding that database. So hopefully we're all here, (laughs) you know, in 50, 100, 200 years from now, I don't know. But, you know, a lot of the things that we're saying now, we have no data, we don't know people can can help us collect that for the future um, and it's important for 
you know, just to know about our, our general ecology, our biodiversity, you know, the value of nature, mm -hmm. <laughs> but also like Marcus was saying earlier to, to really influence policy, you know, we can't get species protection if we don't have um, credible and, and um, extensive data on, on the species and their, their population. Yeah, yeah, we can't even manage, we can't keep common things common, you know, if we don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, to, to add to what Sam was saying and what Kelly was saying, um, you know, just reducing chemical use in your lawn or your yard. I mean, I've got a mugwort problem and I've been battling it for like three years now, but you know, I'm getting a little stronger with it maybe than I would like. But, um, you know, there's some problems that have to be tackled that way, but most things don't. Most things are personal preference, hmm. um, you know, or maybe <laughs> laziness. I don't know. I'm lazy. You know, but, um, you know, just just understand that maybe all these things that might be marketed to homeowners may not be the best and, and definitely think about what you're doing and why and and um, you know if one pound's good two pounds isn't better uh, for some of these some of these things um, you know follow the label uh, guidelines and restrictions and make sure you're doing things the right way but I I until dealing with this mugwort I have sprayed nothing mm -hmm. in this in this yard um, I was annoying it with vinegar for a couple of years um, briefly, but, um, you know, it's, you can get into the mowing timing. You know, we just got through with mo no mow May. Mine's mm -hmm. transitioning into no mow June. <laughs> um, so, you know, because it seems to be like a European initiative and we're a little later, you know, they warm up earlier. So I feel like ours should really be no mow June, but, um, you know, it's, yeah, let, let, let there be a little clover in your yard and then, you know, get, get into, you know, maybe not necessarily having it be, sod you know monoculture but letting whatever's green there be your yard and whatever you know it looks good when it's cut short and then you can kind of not to cut it as often i mean i as much rain as we're getting right now it's growing again but you know we were mowing like very infrequently you know but there are people mm -hmm. mow every three days you don't need you don't need to mow like that <clears throat> you and, and, you bring up a really wonderful point and something that tom and i talked about a couple episodes ago there was i, I had an advertisement in my mailbox for companies that will come out and spray your properties for for ticks and fleas right um you know and i think it's silly to think that it's only going to whatever they spray is only going to affect ticks and fleas how how are those types of companies and initiatives hurting our pollinators well i mean like i had a, a guy as i think probably when i first met tom's dad i was at a green industry meeting and um a landscape company owner came up to me and asked about what they could use for ticks that wouldn't affect as many species, you know, and I said, well, they make granular products. So you're, at least you're not spraying a liquid chemical all over, you know, but even that's not ideal. I mean, get some chickens. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, that's what I do. And yeah, you know, it becomes a population sink for the ticks. You know, keep them in their runs. So they don't eat everything else, but you know, they're hard on a garden, but um, you know, the ticks get on a, a chicken, the chicken can reach everywhere on their body um, and eat the tick. So our, we had a lot of ticks when we moved in and now we have essentially none. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, mosquito spraying is probably a bigger culprit. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that we don't talk about. Have it the night. Yeah. yeah, Kelly, Kelly, it looked like you wanted to say, what, like, what does mosquito spraying, what happens when they go and spray for mosquitoes, ticks, those kind of things? You know, there's, there's, I think one of the things is having a little background knowledge for the 
common homeowner to ask questions. Um, what are you spraying with? And they often give a trade name. And that that's not the great question to ask. You know, those things change and they're modified, but what active ingredient are you spraying? And, you know, just recently somebody contacted me over an email and said, you know, people in their development uh, neighborhood are, are having these mosquito spraying services, um, uh, more than one lawn, multiple lawns, you know, here, here comes the, the lawn service trucks and this individual had inquired about the chemical being used and the, the service straight up told them it was bifen and it doesn't harm bees. And they asked me if it's true. Um, and the active ingredient there is bifenthrin, which is a pyrethroid, and it's highly toxic to bees and many other pollinators. So, you know, um, having these bee safe options is a lot of times great marketing thing to stick on the side of your truck or to put a sign in a yard, but oftentimes it's, it's really not the case. And so, having the consumer ask these questions, um, you know, spray aerial spraying for mosquitoes in general is just not effective. And it, it, it really doesn't make any sense. So, you know, getting rid of that, the, the source populations, the standing water, um, if you do have a, a noticeable problem, um, you know, usually it's just a nuisance problem, but treating the, the larval stage of mosquitoes is a much more effective way to do it. Or build up habitat so you get things like amphibians and, and uh, birds and other animals that actually awesome. Um, is, yeah, I'll, I'll just back that up by saying that any aerial spraying for mosquitoes, <clears throat> all of those, there is no safe chemical that's killing just the mosquitoes and not the bees. So you can't really allow, because of course they're going to say, oh, well, this is bee safe because that's the answer you want to hear and you don't know anything you the homeowner doesn't know anything and so it's like oh well now i feel fine so if you're spraying aerially for mosquitoes you're buying it from the store there's all kinds of products that do that you are messing with the bees so <laughs> no is the answer yeah yeah and yeah. We we're working with golf courses when i was working with golf courses and came up with some best practices for areas that that are intensively managed you know about not spraying during the day when things are, you know, or, or mowing off, say the clover, before you use a, a, an application or something like that. But really, it's yeah, avoidance. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Especially mm -hmm. in the out of play areas and the native, you know, naturalized areas on the golf course. Like, just don't spray. If you have a woody come up in there, or you know, or some other resource concern, there's probably a way to address it. Especially because they they tend to have the labor to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, take a pair of loppers out there and cut the plant rather than spray. You know. Like, how do I get how do I get a woody plant out of my milkweed patch? <laughs> Loppers, you know. Yeah. You, <laughs> you, out there and you know, when when it comes to our lawns and our gardens, we tend to do without you know, you do what you see done, but you don't really question it just because you've seen your parents do it or your grandparents do it or your neighbors do it. And a lot of these things happen and you don't even realize the damage that you're doing. You're just doing it because it's what you've always done or it's what someone's always done. You know, and those are mistakes that we've all mm -hmm. made. You know, I'm sure we've all sprayed chemicals at some point without really knowing what the implication was going to be. And one of the things, um, speaking of mistakes, that Tom and I have been big, <laughs> big on, you know, we you make a lot of mistakes, but, you know, mistakes are good because you learn from them. Um, and one of the things that we've been talking about are what are some of the 
biggest mistakes that you've made that you've learned your most valuable lesson. So I don't know if you have any personal stories or, or stories from people that you worked with that that mistakes that have been made that were important mistakes so that you could see someone grow from that or, or, or do better from that. There's always a positive spin. <laughs> I'll just mention that uh, our lab, so we're a laboratory um, and uh, we're, we develop, we're, we're kind of a support group for other researchers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so our MO is to make mistakes. So a lot of it is like, <laughs> well, how do we count something? How do we develop a trap? How, what plants are the best ones? Well, we're, you know, slogging through tons of plant material, trying all kinds of things. This year we were trying to figure out how do you sample bees and canopies? So we had crossbows that, uh, the arrow broke the string or went out to the next country, traps get hung up into trees. It's, it is absolutely what we do, uh, which is uh, trial and error with a, a weighting of the errors. So, I mean, that's what your federal tax dollars do, which is allow us to make a lot of mistakes so that we can hand things off to other people so that they don't have to, and we don't have to worry about getting tenure or a lot of other kinds of problematic features of reward um so yeah we love we love those kinds of mistakes and um, we're constantly having to rehash our what we thought was the pattern or what the how bees use plants or how they work in the environment or where they are where they're not so it's really an important driver for um everything we do awesome awesome marcus kelly do you have anything there's something come on (laughs) oh we've made a lot of mistakes i mean just getting into you know when when pollinators became um important as as far as in the farm bill conservation programs which you know i've been working on um you know we didn't we didn't have staff on the ground that knew what to do so we have been you know we've started making seed mixes we started doing our own research in collaboration you know with Rutgers and Penn State on plant selection surveys Um, things like site prep techniques you know we we are we're basically coming from a world of you know people knew how to restore grasslands for birds but that doesn't always translate into a diverse mix of wildflowers and so like Sam you know one of the things that that Xerces, well, uh, on, I guess, you know, and myself take good pride in is that we do field test the things that we're going to write up and recommend. Okay. Um, and something that works great in California, like site prep with solarization, <laughs> you know, doesn't always translate to something, you know, in other regions. So that's why we have our regional guides. Um, we've done trials in, across the country. And so we feel I'm not going to say, you know, that we're giving you the best recipe that exists. There's, you know, tons of ways to do things and there's different measures of, of success. Um, and a lot of that depends on the resources you have to put into a habitat installation, whether it's what tools you have or labor or money or whatever it may be. Um, you know, but we feel that we've at least ruled out the things like really really don't do this <laughs> because we've done this several times in different trials across the country and you know we've had variable results or we had poor results and when we write a conservation plan or just give anybody friendly advice we want to make sure we're, we're setting them up for success yeah. 
you know, because then Mother Nature has a role in it that has all of these, <laughs> you know, surprises and, yeah. and things. So we try to narrow down that risk of, of having these habitats fail. And that's that's been working out for us. Um, and we're still fine tuning things. So in three years from now, the seed mix we think is the best seed mix for an upland dry sandy site might change. You know, more plants might become available. Um, there's all these these fluctuations in in um, the year to year and what we learn as yep. we go. We're always learning and the science gets better and, and you get better information over and over and then you keep adjusting and that's part of it. Um, Marcus, you have anything to add on that? Well, I mean, Kelly brings up some good, very good points and, and Sam too. It's like you have to learn from, you know, quote unquote mistakes in the trial and error, whether you make them or not. You know, learn from other people's mistakes. I like to blame all my mistakes on Pineless Nursery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 seriously. Um, you know, it's like Kelly said, it's like you come up with the greatest seed mix ever, and it might not rain, you know, or you get a hurricane. Like, we lost a site in Florida for Monarchs in the Rough because they literally lost three acres of ground because of the hurricane. Now, I'm like, yeah, we can't really count that as a failure. Like, that's not your fault, you know. Um, but, you know, we need, need to um, – make sure that we're putting the right plants in the right place and answering people's questions in a way that answers it, but also um, like we've been talking about that lays it out pretty clearly that there are a lot of things we don't know mm -hmm. um, or it can change. You know, Kelly's seed mix work out just fine now or my seed mix work out just fine right now. And then, well, three years from now, it might not work. So with golf courses, they tried first off before, you know, in the 90s, they tried all annuals. Yeah, look great, and people are like they fail. That's because they're all annuals. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, and so it's like, how do you incorporate perennials? You know, and then like, you know, like, like I said, sending the right seed to the right place. It's gonna be tricky because seed availability is abysmal in parts of the country, like the mm -hmm. Southwest, the extreme Southeast. Um, you just can't you can't get the mix that you want. You know, common milkweed is is listed as a noxious plant in Georgia, mm -hmm. so we're, we're not gonna send common milkweed to Georgia. You know, um, and so just finding those things out and learning as best you can and adapting. Is, is what we need to do. Yeah. It's almost, it reminds me of that uh, Thomas Edison quote that when asked about like how many times he failed to make a light bulb, he was like, well, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I found 10,000 ways that didn't work. And that led me the way that, that didn't work. So, right. But, I mean, you, you conduct a survey for bees or butterflies or dragonflies, and if they're not there, that's information too. But it seems like a lot of the data is presence absence, um, mm -hmm. and which is, which is hard to deal with in some ways, you know, statistically. But like if you look at what they're seeing in Europe right now, presence absence will throw a wrench in what you're doing because they're seeing these, at least for butterflies, these populations are what they're calling thinning across the landscape. Their geographic range is expanding, but they're lower numbers. And some of that's in response to climate, you know, but but so you'll have a new butterfly show up in a place and it's like, great, our diversity is going up, but that population is declining. It's just spreading out. Gotcha. So, so so I had, trying uh, to establish something. Yeah. yeah. I had a, I had a beautiful transition lined up earlier and then Fran asked a question and threw us off. <laughs> way off so oh, I'm going I do want to back up a little bit cuz we were talking about about honeybees and monarch butterflies which are two of the more recognized pollinators to just about everybody. You go to a classroom and say, "Hey, what are pollinators?" They're probably going to say honeybees and monarchs before they say anything else. Yeah. Um and that made me think are there pollinators that we don't focus enough on or there's pollinators that we focus way too much on? Um, are there any species that come to mind that, that we're just spending way too much time thinking about or that we really need to be thinking about a lot more? 
Can we take one for the team so we don't throw our gauntlets down? And <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the, the one that, again, it's like trying to get people to monitor the, the things that are around when we're awake, you know, or that are cute, or we don't mind having around our house. You know, those, those are key considerations to getting engagement and, and involvement. Mm -hmm. But to be fair, like, there's 725 species of butterfly that regularly occur in North of Mexico. Okay? Mm -hmm. There's 11,000 moths, well, right? So yeah. moths are getting ignored by a lot of people, but butterflies are flying during the day, bees are flying during the day. We can see them. So that's that's my dodgy answer for which one's better, which we, you know, we should be paying attention to moths, but there's so many, you can spend your entire life trying to learn them all. It's hard to tease out what's common, what's a specialist, what composition you should have. Whereas with bees and butterflies, there's a lot more information out there on what the composition might be telling you about the status of whether it's degraded or, you know, whether there's rare plants there and, and things mm -hmm. like that. that. So that's my answer, you know, because there's all, you, you find a hundred studies will say, you know, like Sam said, bees do the heavy lifting. Well, if you talk about native forbs out in the wild, you know, butterflies do pick up some of that, but they don't get credit for it a lot of the time, like flame azaleas, you know, shrub. Um, there was a recent paper that came out from Nick uh, Haydad and Karen Oberhauser about the secondary pollination of cotton hmm. um, that butterflies were doing. Nobody even thought about that, you know. Um, so it's you you find enough to fit your argument either way, but we know that these things are declining um, rapidly, and um, we need to do something about it. And I and I feel like we can use butterflies and bees, at least in my mind, for a surrogate to know that we'll have the habitat right for a lot of these moths mm -hmm. you can't tease out 11 you can't survey for 11,000 things yeah. you know yeah. the general public can't, anyway. and, and yeah it's just difficult it's just too many yeah. and I think you know not not necessarily a certain pollinator but I'll talk about it more broadly you know a lot of people when they want to do pollinator habitat they find the idea of a wildflower meadow very attractive <laughs> you know they have this picture in their head that they're like Sticking to the head of an alpine meadow, right, right. growing plants, and blowing in the breeze, um, and that's all fine. But you know, here in forest land, a lot of times we're fighting nature to create that meadow. Um, and on ag lands where it's been kept open for a really long time, that's a little easier. But in some areas, it's not. And I'm always trying to convince people to think beyond that and plant trees and shrubs that are you know not only I, I think maybe people are like oh well I have trees around or yeah that sounds pretty commonplace I want something fantastic yeah. but you know the amount of flowers on one really good flowering um, shrub mm -hmm. or tree is enormous um, and so you know, a lot of times we're thinking about expanding habitat out on our landscape, but there is a lot you can do even in a small space by layering vertically. And I think a lot of times trees and shrubs are left out of the conversation when we talk about, um, you know, uh, enhancing or restoring habitat uh, for pollinators. And a lot of times those meadows, you know, that flowering period in summer and fall, yes, it attracts a lot of pollinators, but some of them are our most common generalists mm -hmm. so you know thinking about plants that specialist needs and a lot of them are tied to to um forest understory plants woodies and so just expanding the way you think about the habitat that you're building for these these animals um, nice 
Sam, do you have anything you want to add to that? I'll just pick up what Kelly was just talking about, which is uh, we tend to um, go back to the traditional set of plants that are uh, pollinator friendly. And we also tend to uh, that we can, you know, buy at the big box stores um, in terms of wildflower seeds or what they call wildflower plants uh, for bees or pollinators. Mm -hmm. And we tend to be very field oriented. So um, uh, and what that does is um, good and useful. But I would um, just back up what Kelly said and like, it's about biodiversity. So playing the same things over and over is okay. Just like mm, you can make an argument that bird feeders are okay, but bird feeders are not going to um, really shift the boat of bird conservation one inch. There'll just be more birds, not mm -hmm. a bad thing, but now yeah. we're evolving in our sophistication to how we support pollinators. And we have to start looking at um, broadening the number of plants available, broadening the plantings that municipalities are going to be using, broadening the thoughts of homeowners to include some of these more obscure plants that might be supporting bees that only go to that plant. Uh, backyards are not non-habitat for um, these rare and uncommon things, uh, but you have to have the plants. So it's it's the, the movement on a in a very big way to um, more diversity of plants in pollinator mixes and in our advice and Kelly's group in particular, and I'm sure Marcus is doing it too, are really starting to do that. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, so we need you to grow a bunch of plants. I, I, we may <laughs> be able to do that. I will be sending availabilities to all of you as soon as this is over. Uh, so, you know, we we're we're talking about helping our pollinators and and protecting them, and and when you think of protecting, you know, at, at some point, government has or can step in. Like there could be legislature, like something could be endangered species. Does that kind of help help, or is it? I, I know this is a loaded question, but it's do we need more protection in as far as laws go, or does that make things harder in another way? To, to do these types of things. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I know it's a loaded question because I'm sure there's pluses and minus. There's pluses and minuses to everything that we discuss, and I I know that's tough, especially for the positions that you're all in. Yeah. But um, well, you know, policy on the federal level, like the Endangered Species Act, those kind of policies. Uh, you know, they're complicated and they come with a lot of bureaucracy and, you know, sometimes they're limiting in, in ways that, you know, it's a slow process or it's, it's a capacity issue to, you know, look at the 200 species that are kind of on the waiting list to be reviewed. Yeah. Um, and so, you, you know, protection for these animals is important, sure, but, you know, we, can't sit on our hands and wait for that. Um, sometimes it happens, a lot of times it doesn't, and it's disappointing. Um, but really, you know, shifting that focus to there's policy at all different levels, right? That's like true. down to your homeowners association. Like, how can you influence your homeowners association to allow you to <laughs> plant other things than, you know, burning bush or, you know, whatever they have out there? Um, how can you influence um, ordinances in your 
their neighborhoods to, you know, allow for, you know, uh, something other than that two inch cut grass that they want to see. Um, how can you influence your community, your township, your parks, um, you know, whether it's at a township or county level to, you know, reevaluate their pest management plans. Um, put some policy into action, like we're seeing with, you know, our, our transportation authorities, when they revegetate, now they're supposed to be using a, a high percentage of, of native species on their infrastructure projects. So it doesn't have to be like a grandioso, you know, yeah. national federal policy, um, but you know, the, the combination of the top down um, and bottom up efforts are, are really going to make some changes and mm -hmm. really there's no better place to start but but locally in my opinion um so if you can get your your groups together and do so and you know on our website we have we have examples of, of these policies and how to interact with with your officials in your community yeah marcus did you have anything you wanted to add to that well i've, I've gone on the record about like the monarch listing on endangered species act i think maybe we even talked about it i don't know but it's it's recorded but um you know i i do have concerns about you know top down impacting voluntary conservation measures and as we just saw with uh lesser prairie chicken there are ways to sort of get people to act and if they don't act there's still a process to have a candidate become listed if goals aren't being met yeah. so i think there's sort of like this half measure like kelly's talking about like there's there's an in-between maybe you get a, a spur to action by at least the feds paying attention yeah. to what is going on and then say all right let's get a framework in place to deal with it. like i said we, earlier um we're doing it piecemeal like we need some sort of comprehensive invertebrate monitoring um at, you know the continent level to to try to address these concerns from the agencies you know state federal um as it comes up um, as they come up, because otherwise we're just gonna be doing this reinventing the wheel every time, you know. I mean, like where we're sitting, there's what 400, 450 species of native bee, you know. There's there's 125 species of butterfly. Like, do we want to do this hundreds of times? Like, we need to have our act together, um, and and basically keep the government out of it. Like, let, give us a chance to make these changes. But we have to reach a lot of people and get them involved, and sometimes it takes a little spurring. Um, to get people to change but like how do you designate critical habitat for a butterfly that crosses state lines you know yeah. the ag you know, it's treated like a migratory bird at that point in um you know the the, the ag sector isn't going to go for that mm -hmm. so you know as much as anybody would want something to be listed um anything that's going to impact commodities is going to get a pretty strong look um you know but these resident butterflies or bees it might be a different game and we're gonna be doing it over and over and over and over as these things decline because we're just you know destroying the habitat supplanting it with something that's not suitable the i there's you know with with doing all of this there's there's always a lot of challenges and it can be frustrating but the reward is high and and we i think in some way or another we've all gotten into the fields that we're in to make a difference and since you've started in doing this with let's just say pollinators do you feel that a change has been made and, and a difference is being made do you see a quantifiable like if you look throughout your career and you could say you know we were here but now we're here you know we're, we're seeing the the pendulum swing in our favor do you 
Do you feel that way? Some oh, some days I do. Some days I don't. Personally, some days I mm-hmm. feel like, man, we've made such a difference. We we've done all this, and then I look at something and go, did we? Did we make? <laughs> you know, did it make a difference? Well, I know when I first started, and you know, my my position is a little complicated, but with my partner position with NRCS, you know, that's essentially contract and you know mm-hmm. um, employee. And, and my contract has been renewed, thankfully, several <laughs> times. So I get to keep working and, and doing this job. But, um, you know, in the very beginning, when I started with Xerces and in this, this partner position in 2013, you know, there was a fear that pollinators were the flavor of the month, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, after, you know, stories of honeybee declines and all that, and that was getting a lot of attention, native bees started to get more attention. Um, so, you know, we were confident that at least for some time, we'd have some work to do. Um, the thing that has really been um, surprising and has kind of quelled those concerns is that every year I, I continue to see more interest. And this is from, you know, the regular folks in my neighborhood to the green team I volunteer for to legislators um, and, and everywhere in between. And so, we haven't lost that yet, and it continues to gain traction and increase. Um, you know, and I think that has been, you know, something that I'm very grateful for because, as you know, you know, working on animals, you know, you have fluctuations in what people consider important or what what needs immediate action. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? So, from sure, a sir. federal point of view, and just also tracking a lot of what what states are doing and other government agencies. Uh, when I started 20 years ago working on bees, um, there was very little um, research going on and there was very little understanding. Then we had the um, colony collapse syndrome um, and what's uh, just again mirroring Kelly, it's been a steady march towards more and more interest and more and more research and more and more understanding by homeowners and the average person Whereas at the beginning it was just, you know, crickets. Um, And then I have to say that uh, with the turn of the new administration, it's exploded in the the federal level. So it's not necessarily very apparent to anyone else, but oh my God, so many meetings and people wanting to devote resources now to the uh, pollinator work. It's Mm -hmm. really heartening. So it's a, a hugely, hugely popular. And also people are getting more sophisticated. I mean, just look at your guys uh, business and um, what you are doing now for uh, pollinator plants and talk how you talk about that and how you did you know again 20 years ago very different you probably mm-hmm. didn't even talk about it you maybe okay. no no we, we we didn't and it's you know it's a whole different shift on how it's approached and and that means that we're more educated and our customers are more educated too there's more of a demand for that which is great to see um you know, and it, it's it's funny. It, it sometimes it's how you choose to view the information too. Like on our uh, Facebook page, um, we were talking about something, and someone mentioned, "Oh, I've never heard of a rain garden before." Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, almost a little sad because I was like, "Wow, that's something that you know I know personally. We've been working to promote for for 15 years, mm-hmm. and here's someone locally that still doesn't know what it is." And I'm like, "But on the plus side, this is someone that's now interested." that we're converting that we're able to make the circle bigger and it's one more one more piece in that conglomerate <laughs> that we're able to to educate so i was kind of like saddened a little bit and actually a little happy once i i took a second to brush that sadness off so 
um you know and it's it it does like how we approach things have changed like the uh not just the marketing just how we feel about it what you know you learn what you have and and all the good that it does it's not just planting a native plant because it should be you're planting it something where it should be it's all the other aspects of the ecosystem that you're bringing to it it's not just the plant it's it's the whole picture and that's that's a beautiful thing to see marcus did you have anything you want to add yeah the appreciate the thing a a good example is just look through the transition over the last five or so years of plant milkweed to plant 25 things (laughs) (laughs) you know it's 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 shifted you know people people are gardening and and doing restoration they're planting a much more diverse mix than they were initially i mean obviously for monarchs planting milkweed is, is pretty important um and other species do nectar at it but there's been a transition i think yeah, and we did with Monarchs in the Rough. Like, I came in, and the concept was, we're going to send milkweed seeds everywhere. I'm like, and 30 other things. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, we need a more diverse mix. We need to have a full bloom, get the shoulders of the season, blah, blah, blah. You know, how many pollinators can we possibly support? How many different shapes of flowers and colors? And, you know, and in so that the milkweed transition is, you know, from just milkweed to more things has been across the board. But, you know, with golf courses, with, with Monarchs in the Rough, we've seen just people enthusiastically adopting superintendents just being so excited about using native plants Mm -hmm. in their broader landscape that it's just we essentially touched off this explosion of um people just taking it under their own initiative they may not have even signed up for monarchs in the rough but they're uh, like i talked to this one superintendent in new hampshire he's like you know i know we aren't your 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 zone for the grant money at that time you know, and he and he was like, well, "I'm going to convert 12 acres." I'm like, "Restore 12 acres," but still, I get what you're saying. Like, you know, let's, yeah. let's do that. You know, um, so it's how you think about it. But you know, they're they're doing it on their own. So we had 755 golf courses by the time that I left. We didn't know if we'd get the first hundred. We're sitting around going, "We got this grant money. Do you think we'll be able to spend it?" I don't know. You know, and so we started talking to people and like, "We're giving things away for free. Will they take it?" And they already someone had a bad taste in their mouth from that all annuals thing that I had to overcome. Uh, that predated any of us and um there's it's just this it's it's this ripple effect going out people are trying it they're seeing their peers try it and that's what we need in the residential area too you know there's 40 million acres of residential lawn we don't really need that much you know know, badminton doesn't take up that that much room um so yeah how how can we get people to to start thinking about things holistically and and you know like cutting down along like Mm -hmm. you know one of the the advice a lot of the times when tom and Tom and I are asked, you know, what's the best place to start? You know, one thing that we always advocate for is just we always preach making the circle bigger. A lot of the times we're talking to people that already know the benefits that we're all talking about. It's but how can you help not convert but bring someone else in? Because so many of these groups and and so many attitudes I see, it's almost like an elitist attitude from not from the professionals, more from – I don't want to say listeners, but a lot of the people involved that, you know, it's when, when people try to come in, they, they get scoffed at, mm-hmm. you know, and it's yeah. just, um, a lot of times when we get asked to talk, we're talking to the choir. So it's yeah, like, it's how people do you already interested in, yeah. in native plants? They know a lot of times we're talking to people who know more than we do. Yeah. <laughs> and so then it's, we're supposed to teach <laughs> us. Yeah, we're all sitting here critiquing it's, each other. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of truth then. So I, I sit around and think about like what sector or group hasn't been talked to hasn't been engaged mm-hmm. and that's where golf courses came about because 
you know, I'm, I'm working on it now, Sustainable Monarch, you know, creating this network of butterfly reserves that are managed specifically into the future. But I've had this idea for six years, and it was always, how do we buy the land? You can't afford to buy the land. And then Audubon International is like, we work with golf courses. I'm like, sweet, I don't have to buy the land. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's like you try to you try to adapt what you want to do to fit the situation, um, but there's definitely an opportunity to reach out to other stakeholders that may own land that maybe hasn't been addressed. And like you know, Xerxes has started to do some of this work uh, in particular with um, uh, women landowners. You know, mm-hmm. Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever they're starting to do it now too because they're the largest growing sector of farmers and landowners. You know, um, and so female farmers and ranchers are being talked to more now than they were five or 10 years ago. And so things like that, or golf courses or civics organizations, you know, like um, who manages that town green space, you know, and, and how do you talk to the, you know, the Kiwanis club, the lions rotary, you know, whoever, yeah. and you know, rotary has a big um, initiative right now. They're calling operation pollination. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well that's very close to operation pollinators Syngenta has, but we'll go with it. Um, and you know, it's, it's building awareness and getting the clubs, the volunteer base to do something at home or they're all business owners, you know, in rotary, at least, you know, they're movers and shakers in the community. They control what happens, what planting is like in front of the country club or the pool or the bank, you know, restaurants, you know, how, how do we get these movers and shakers to start implementing these things and then the people will follow suit. You know, it's 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 funny. It's it's how do you make people care? People care about a lot of things, but how do you make them specifically care about this? And sometimes you're not even aware that they may not they're ambivalent to it. It's I was kind of surprised the other day that our our local high school, uh, which Tom went to, my kids mm-hmm. my kids went to, uh, contacted me and said, you know, we've never actually bought plants from you. Like, and we have an incredible ag program at that school and they're like we just realized you're not set up in our system we've never actually bought plants we've donated plants and mm-hmm. we've worked and we've talked but it was just it's kind of surprising to me it's like how did how did i miss that like how did i miss that you know we could be making a difference with kids at that age yeah. um mm-hmm. when they're most impressionable to make a difference and i missed that opportunity and i never even thought about it until they reached out to me so well, i kind I, of felt, I struggle with that too you know, I'm worried about what's going on in California or Texas or whatever. And yeah, I could be doing a project with the local school. Yeah. You know, then I've been thinking about trying to try ways to implement that, but it may be, end up being out of my own pocket or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's hard to do stuff locally when you get distracted by everything else, you know, I mm-hmm. do yeah. in my yard, but you know, I need to do a better job of promoting pollinators here locally. You know, cause I, I look at where my kids are and how I was brought up and how they're a lot more tolerant of things than at the the era that I was growing up in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things have changed. And if you can make a change at that level when they're impressionable, you know, just imagine where we could be 30 years from now with just mm-hmm. with their thinking of things like pollinators and, and native plants and that, 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 you know, it's, it's it's trying to think outside the box, and that's one way that we're like, what's an out of the box way to do it? And that maybe that's a good place to start. Have you, are there any out of out of the box ways that you've come across that that you're like, you know, typically we hadn't focused on this, but this may be a good idea to to reach more people or make people care. So I can tell you, um, <clears throat> we do these really high um, definition, intense photographs when mostly they were done for scientific reasons, um, to create an online museum, let's call it of all kinds of rare 
species, but we also made them very beautiful just to satisfy ourselves. Because like, if we're going to spend all this time, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to look at something nice. And they are beautiful. Right? Yeah. And so, um, but the the uh, interesting thing is that um, uh, lots of people like, like it turns out like looking at them. It's a longer story, but we have a huge following with um, you know millions and millions and millions of views, and we make the the um, downloads available and then we because all of a sudden we realize oh it's the general general public that's looking at this not the people in the choir yeah um, we then have a platform to speak to so we also tell stories and we don't do it in you know our traditional super dry boring way <laughs> we'll tell funny stories about um, what's going on um, with how that was captured or what the backstory is or story about ourselves or the uh, other people and we have lots of engagement that way so that's really been for us you know we're a very boring scientific lab um, we have now the largest following in usgs which wow. is eight thousand employees and more than the volcano people for example <laughs> uh, which is a lot right so, oh, wow um, it can it can be done and our hook in this were those pictures, mm -hmm. which are, by the way, public domain. You could just take them and say that they were yours, right? And then you could yeah. have this following too. But um, uh, anyway, I offer that as a example of these these odd ways because now we've got a big uh, reach into uh, groups of people who, you know, could care less mm -hmm. about my scientific publications. Wow. If we could find a way to tie in native plants to Sasquatch, we would have <laughs> yeah. when we look at the podcast charts, it's like the first five are always about Bigfoot. You know, yeah. if we could apparently there's there's a large following for that. If we could tie that in, we'd be golden. <laughs> we could reach everyone. No, that's not and those pictures are, are fabulous. And yeah. they, they capture my attention every time I'm going through like a Facebook feed and they I always find myself drawn mm -hmm. to that. And that's a great, great example. Yeah. Anybody else? No, no. Kelly, uh, I mean, that's that's what we would like to do with this butterflying world series is just get it, more people noticing, going out. And even if you don't know what the butterfly is, we can figure out a way to capture that that data and use it in some way. You know, just just that you saw a butterfly, and we can probably figure out what it is based on the time of year. So, but that's why I set it up with. Um, the number of species you see or the total individual number of butterflies because you, you may not know what it was yeah. and you're learning you know, so it's trying to appeal all experience levels and all backgrounds to try to be more inclusive mm -hmm. um to get people out and contributing to these databases in this case e-butterfly or iNaturalist. but um so there's something for everybody whatever platform you like to use but just getting people to notice what's out there start keeping track and then hopefully transitioning into doing some action like planting a garden um and that sort of thing awesome yeah, awesome. yeah with with the butterfly world series i think we're gonna have to put that in our or challenge our listeners and and maybe put a little prize at the end in oh, our I facebook like group I like so that. maybe who will we'll have some some teams in our group and then uh whoever gets the most i don't know what they'll win who we'll wins maybe well, maybe, well, maybe they'll win one of our new t-shirts one of our new t i think that's so, a great yeah, idea yeah. i think that's a great idea <laughs> tom did you have any any more questions i know we've been no no i think we're we're at a good place right now um i'm sure we could go we, we could keep going on an hour and a half but i think we're in a good spot to, to kind of wrap it up now 
All right. Awesome. So, you know, and I know you've all done this before and we, we kind of always end with what's your favorite native plant, but since it's pollinator week, we can just kind of specialize a little bit more. What's your favorite plant for pollinators? And it could be anything you want. Uh, I'm going to go from left to right on my screen. So Kelly, you can go first. Well, my favorite is, and I hope this is what I've said at my favorite was last time too. So <laughs> We're going to go back and but, check. <laughs> I absolutely love uh, Pussy Willow, Solace awesome. is color for the early spring bees and many other reasons. It gets me excited about the spring, you know, that there's specialists on it. It's, it's um, a plant that I think doesn't get enough attention. It's super easy to plant and grow. And so, um, you know, I get, I get very excited, um, searching my neighborhood you know i live here in new jersey by yep. cooper river so i'm always creeping around there early spring looking at the willows mm -hmm. and, and taking pictures of them. awesome that's a great one sam how about you i'm gonna say um uh, figwort and um it's not a plant that you would maybe necessarily plant just for bloom presentation yeah. but oh my gosh it's producing buckets of nectar on a whole series of little tiny flowers that are up reasonably high you know like um, towards uh, waist high so and then the bees are out in the open um, accessing those little tiny flowers and so it's like a little bee circus so you get a lot <laughs> of action a visibility you know it's something to sit around and you know have in front of your front porch and just watch what's going on so um, that's my favorite right now awesome that's great how about you Marcus I think I had to say prickly ash that's good good oh, one not nice. to hug but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, the, it's the caterpillar food plant for giant swallowtail. Oh, awesome. Uh, I like I like my cedars. But here along the Delaware River, it's where the range comes up, you know, the northern extent here, and we get some giant swallowtails here in the yard. Because of it. Awesome. I think I'd love to see that plant more available in nursery. Awesome. Um, mm. You taking notes, like huh? Yeah. Before, I... You don't plan on running. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, and, and like we do every podcast, we kind of end this with a final thought for everyone where, um, we just give you the floor for, for a minute or two. Uh, you can summarize, you can promote something, you can, um, use the time however you want. Mm -hmm. and Kelly, we're going to start with you again. Well, I just want to thank everybody for listening and, um, you know, keep doing good work, keep fighting the good fight, promoting pollinators, finding new ways to get involved. Um, like I said, it doesn't just have to be, you know, getting a bulldozer and taking your lawn out, although we would probably uh, be supportive of that. <laughs> but these other ways that you can get involved with your community, um, whether it's through our community science programs or community engagement um, programs like B-City and B-Campus, there's, there's tons of ways to get involved. and. You know, a lot of times when I give presentations, because I, I typically work on larger habitat installations, people see those pictures, although I've been getting more small, small scale garden style pictures into those. Um, they think that these efforts are beyond them, that they're unachievable, that they can't do it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I want people to not think that because these, you know, you could the insects in general, you know, they're readily accessible um, to a large swath of people across our landscape. 
And so, you know, we can participate in pollinator conservation in small and large spaces. And there's animals we just can't do that for, right? Yeah. Um, so go out there, notice what's around you, enjoy nature and, and the intrinsic value it brings to you every day, whether it's looking at pollinators or beyond. Awesome. Awesome. That's fantastic. How about you, Sam? I, you know, I, I have almost always a very simple message that hits almost everyone, um, except maybe apartment dwellers, which is reduce your lawn. Yeah. Like it's a very simple give back. And because bees are tiny, um, you can, like Doug Ptolemy uh, presents, you can really have a entire national park, refuge, whatever in your backyard, but not if it's just grass. Yeah. Awesome. That's fantastic. How about you, Marcus? Yeah, I, I want to echo what's been said, but you know, plant, plant a garden, encourage your community spaces to add native plants where they can, and, and you know, work on that at the larger landscape level. Um, you know, as far as a plug, check out sustainablemonarch.org to see what we're doing with the economic incentives. You know, we're, we're paying a dollar a pound for mature milkweed pods. If somebody wants to have their whole community collect milkweed, um, and the, the products are made. You know, clothing, lotions, blankets, you know, there's a whole slew of things that'll help build an economy based on native plants, in addition to mm-hmm. buying and selling the seed and, and the ecological benefits that we all know about. Um, you know, it can be a, a significant income uh, addition for local people that might be underemployed, um, but definitely an opportunity for entrepreneurs to make things, make products out of these uh, plants and help promote them in everyday use and reconnect people to the land. Awesome. That's fantastic. Fran, why don't you go? Sure, sure. So I know uh, for some of our listeners and and for me as well, sometimes these talks can be overwhelming um, and it's a lot of information and it, you know, sometimes it can even be a little scary because you start thinking about, you start stringing these podcasts together together, and you you think of all these issues, like it's it's our water, it's our soil, it's our pollinators, it's it's everything. And it can be overwhelming and you don't know where to start. a lot of these organizations you can be a part of and, and be part of a great uh, community and, and make a difference that way. But also remember, restoration starts at home. Plant one native plant and enjoy it. And if you do that, you're doing more good than you realize. Start with one plant, enjoy it. Like do the hard work, enjoy why it's there, see what happens from there, and build. It's it's you can take it one step at a time and and it doesn't have to be large it can be small yeah awesome perfect thank you so uh basically mine was um i didn't steal yours did i no 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 (laughs) it's uh what well i guess it kind of was so i'm going to change it a little bit but basically what fran said there's all these different issues you listen to the whole string of podcasts there's issues that go in every single direction but they all kind of revolve around one thing, and that's including more native plants. Yeah. Um, and we're lucky at Pinehurst Nursery to work with so many of these great organizations. That's why we started the podcast, to highlight some of these organizations, because they're doing so many great things, and people can really find their, their niche. One way that you're going to be able to support some of these organizations, see what I'm, I'm oh, tying I, all together. I like here. where you're going. <laughs> so, um, yeah, one way you're able to support all these organizations is by buying one of these T-shirts that we just had, have just created, and they launched last week uh each we haven't figured out how we're going to divvy up the money but we're going to try and uh take basically all the profits that we're making off these shirts we're not keeping them we don't need it we want to give it to these organizations because they're doing such amazing things and uh and 
that's where we want this to go. So we still haven't figured out how it's all going to break down. Hopefully it's not like 50 bucks that we're splitting up between all these organizations. Hopefully it's a little bit more substantial than that. But um, but that would be my, my final thought. We've put up, uh, we've made some creative designs, so we hope you like them. I'm excited so, about them. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. going to wear them proudly. They'll get the links. Share them around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, right. Yeah, this, I, I love that we're we're being able to give back and also doing something that yeah, this is, that will we the big enjoy. thing is making that circle bigger. This is one way to do it. If you go to a Wild Ones conference, or, or this is what we we're talking about, Kelly, or with Kelly earlier, you go to a Wild Ones conference, or you go to your Native Plant Society, or you're going to even just a garden club meeting, and you're wearing a shirt that says "Plant Native Plants" or "Native Plants Healthy Planet" on it. That's going to send a message, and then hopefully it drives more people uh, to to learn more about that message either whether it's through us or through other means you know even better if you're if you're not at one of those places and you're just at the park and a random person comes up and sees and says where did you get that how can i be a part of that if you can convert someone that way that's that's a wonderful thing as well so So. we've been working hard on them we're excited for you guys to see them and hopefully you've been working hard on i haven't (laughs) haven't done anything give me one idea (laughs) (laughs) i had one and it wasn't even that big of an idea so that is it thank you for joining us today we hope you enjoy listening to our rooted discussion For more information, visit Native Plants Healthy Planet uh, website for links. Um, Thank you, everyone, listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. We're going to give a huge thank you to R.J. Comer for contributing our theme music to Rooted Discussions and as well as our buzz episodes he does as well. Uh, Make sure you listen or download R.J.'s music at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume your music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery and YouTube uh, at our custom URL, Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. And, and it's nice that you haven't because we have gotten some some uh, new callers on that. Uh, call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question, leave a comment. When we play your question and comment, uh, we'll comment on, on it ourselves on a future episode of The Buzz. And uh, let's keep that Native Plant Healthy Planet Facebook group growing. Man, it's just it's, – it's getting to the point where it's taken off. Like early on, you'd get one or two here, but now it's like every time I look, it's like 10 or 20 oh, yeah. people. Oh, yeah, and a lot of good discussions happen over there. Yeah, so. totally, totally. As always, you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Uh, as I'd like to say, I don't know how many people who are doing that. Even Russ Finari, who he had listened switched. on the website for so long. He converted. Our, our former guest and friend, Russ Finari. He switched and he's listening through a different method now. Yeah. So you're probably listening through Apple Pod, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, really wherever you consume your podcasts. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. I'd like to thank all of our guests again. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend time with us today. Uh, coming up next, we have a buzz episode We of Undetermined Topic. Uh, I guess we'll figure it out probably the the day before or yeah. the morning <laughs> so it's, it's starting you know, we're still busy but we're we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel so we'll we'll start being better prepared as we get closer but uh we'll have that coming to you next week until then keep it native Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.